Are you having second thoughts? Ronnie's friend asked him. Just over a year prior, Ronnie had moved his family, his wife, and a young son to Benghazi, Libya, to serve the purpose of the gospel. Without much hesitation, Ronnie responded, No, there is nowhere on earth that we would rather be. Nowhere. Soon after the conversation, Ronnie set out about his daily routine, which included a jog throughout the city. Subsequently, he was circled several times by a black jeep that eventually pulled up next to him with a quick exchange of some words and bullets left him dead. Ronnie's family had come back to the United States for the Christmas holiday and he was set to join them a week later. Ronnie did not set out to be a martyr, but to be like Jesus. You see, sometimes Christ-like living leads to Christ-like dying. That's what we'll see in our text this morning. That God's servants may be rejected, but that God will raise them up. And I'm going to exhort you this morning to set out to be like Jesus. Let's pray. We're going to get into rather large text this morning, Acts uh, chapter 6, and we're going to go from verse 8 all the way to the end of chapter 7, which is 60 long verses. I'm going to touch on all of them, and so we'll move rather quickly uh, at the front end, and then at the end we'll, we'll settle down for a little bit. All right? Let's pray and we'll get into it. God, we thank you that we're able to gather here safely to worship you What a great gift this is. Thank you that you've brought all of us here, different backgrounds and ages and experiences. And yet we all have one thing in common that transcends all of our differences. Relationship with Jesus who died for our sins and has been raised from the dead. It's in him that we put our faith. It's in his victory that we shall share. We pray that as we look forward to enjoying the fullness of the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth, that you would train us for righteousness now. That you would help us to see in the life and the words of Stephen here in the book of Acts, call to discipleship. Pray that you would help us to do the ordinary Christian obedience of following in the footsteps of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So in Acts, to summarize, we have said the whole book can be set out this way. Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the church goes out. Most of this happens in the first two chapters. Jesus ascends into heaven. He sits on his throne where he rules and he reigns. He sends his Spirit to fill up his church, and they begin to minister. Thousands are added to the church. We've seen the gospel since that point encounter some adversity. But over and over again, in the face of adversity, the word prevails. The church grows. I mean, last week we saw even though Peter was being opposed and the rest of the apostles were being opposed by the religious establishment, there were still a whole lot of people that liked him. Right? Peter is walking through the streets and his shadow is healing people. That'll gain you some popularity. But today what we'll see is that the tide begins to turn. 
The gospel is growing, but it's no longer growing in popularity within the boundaries of Jerusalem. Stephen, one who is serving as a deacon, who's waiting these tables that um, are serving those widows who were neglected in the early church, we now see is speaking of Christ, and he's being opposed. And his opposition comes not only from the Sanhedrin, not only from the Jewish establishment, but also from the people. Let's read in verse 8. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen's Synagogue. Synagogues are just like Jewish churches. They're all over the place. They're not the main temple in Judaism, but little synagogues where you would go to worship God. Some members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Syrians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. Remember the Sanhedrin is like being before Congress and the Supreme Court at the same time. It's a judicial ruling body. They presented false witnesses to the Sanhedrin who said, this man never stops speaking against this holy place, that is the temple, and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And so Stephen is being opposed, and there are two primary charges being brought against him, and they are being brought by false witnesses. And so we can assume that the claims of these false witnesses aren't true, that they're being twisted up in some way. And the charges are that Stephen is anti-temple and he's anti-Moses. That he's blasphemous. Stephen has found himself in this precarious position. He's made everyone angry because he's been preaching Christ, right? What he's done, it's really easy to see, and we'll see it more clearly when we get to the end of his really long sermon, is that Jesus is the point of Judaism. He's the fulfillment of every promise of God. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the law keeper. And what Stephen has clearly been teaching them is that the law is meant to point you to Jesus. In the temple, it's meant to show you that you can only meet God through Jesus. And what they've done is they've just kind of taken this and said that, well, Stephen just hates all of these things from our past. He's trying to change everything. So they've just twisted it up a little bit and brought these charges. And so he faces opposition and hatred. One lesson that we'll just look at quickly is that when you identify with Christ in this world, you will face opposition. 1 John 3.13 says to us, don't be surprised when the world hates you. Stephen is being hated here. They're not seeking to understand what he's saying but they're raising up false witnesses against him. And it's going to cost Stephen. There is a cost to following Christ that is easy for us in the United States to forget. Though I am sure, if you are faithfully bearing witness to Christ, you will encounter hostility. If you haven't encountered hostility for being a Christian, it's likely because you haven't spoken about Jesus a whole lot. 
Stephen here encounters hostility. He's before the Sanhedrin. And the high priest levels the question at him. Are these things true? These charges true? And Stephen said no, and that was it. No, no, he's going to launch into this really long sermon where he gives us a selective history of Israel. And there are two primary themes sprinkled throughout. One is that God doesn't need a temple to be with his people. It's the first theme. And the second theme, which is the one we're emphasizing this morning, is that though God's servants may be rejected, they will be raised up. Furthermore, God delivers his people through his servants that have been rejected. And so he begins by showing us the first theme in the life of Abraham. Verse 2 of chapter 7. Brothers and fathers, he replied, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran and said to him, leave your country and relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he left the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this land in which you are now living. He didn't give him an inheritance in it not even a foot of ground. But he promised to give it to him as a possession to his descendants after him. Even though he was childless, God spoke in this way. His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country and they would enslave and oppress them for 400 years. I will judge the nation they will serve as slaves, God said. After this, they will come out and worship me in this place. And so he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And after this, he fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Here's the big point. Before the temple, before the nation of Israel even existed, God was there. He revealed himself To Abraham. Where? Not in the promised land. In Mesopotamia. That's the point, that it's not the promised land. And God is there. He doesn't have any boundaries. He's God. He reveals himself to Abraham and he's with Abraham. He speaks to Abraham and calls him to leave his country and his relatives. And to go to the land that God will show him. And sometimes, I I don't know that we give Abraham enough credit. Like, God shows up, it's a polytheistic society, and he says, look, Abraham, uh, you're only going to worship me, and what I want you to do, in response to me revealing myself to you, is leave the life that you've known. Leave everything you've ever known, leave leave your distant family, and go to a place that I'm going to show you, right? Like, if I'm Abraham, I'm going, um, like, could you tell me where it is? No, I'll just show you. Abraham's like, okay, I'm in. He follows by faith. This is a huge challenge. It really is just spectacular obedience. He he leaves the life that he was comfortable in, the life that he liked. He leaves it all in order to obey God's word and enjoy God's promise. See, the gospel brings to us the same confrontation. Jesus says to all of us, leave your life of sin, the sin that you like, the life that you like. Leave it behind. Turn from it. Repent of it. Follow me. Enjoy the blessing of God. This is is what happens when Jesus is being revealed to us in the gospel. We are being challenged to respond to his word with faith. Stephen is showing us that Abraham received God's word by faith. And that's going to be set in contrast with those who accuse him and oppose him. See, the Sanhedrin and their fathers, their ancestors before them, over and over again, they've rejected the word of God by rejecting the servants of God. He begins to show us this second theme in the life of Joseph. Verse 9 
the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Now a famine and great suffering came over all of Egypt. Also notice the word Egypt is repetitive here throughout this section. You're going to see it six times. Throughout all of Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could find no food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there for the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there, were carried back to Shechem, and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had purchased for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. Here's the point. God is in Egypt. Is there a temple in Egypt? No. God is with Joseph when he's in Egypt. And God is with Joseph, even though Joseph is rejected. If you remember the story of Joseph, he is favored by his father. He gets that sweet coat, and everybody's really jealous of it. And so they sell him out into slavery. Like, first they're going to kill him, and they're like, well, maybe we shouldn't kill him, Reuben intercedes. Like, we'll just throw him into this pit for a little while. We'll figure out what to do with him. And then some slavers come along. Oh, well, we'll sell him to those slave traders and make some money out of this deal. They, they then tear his coat apart. They put some blood on it from animals, and they take it to his father. Like, look, they present that blood to his father and say, your son, he's dead. Jacob's really sad. And so what happens is Joseph ends up in Egypt and somehow gets sold into Potiphar's house, where he becomes very successful, is then accused unjustly of some sexual impropriety by Potiphar's wife. Like, he runs away from her, remember? She's like, I want you to sleep with me. I want you, I need you. And he's like, no thanks. And, and he, he runs away. And then she's like, he, he tried to rape me. And Potiphar's wife believes his wife and has Joseph thrown into prison. Genesis calls it the pit. And he's in the pit for a couple years. And eventually God, through giving Joseph this dream or this ability to interpret dreams, raises Joseph out of the pit into the right hand of the most powerful person in all the land. Joseph is able to warn the Pharaoh that there's a famine coming. We need to prepare for it. And so they store up grain. And then because of this famine, it's very widespread. We see the brothers who sold Joseph out, who left him for dead, coming to him for food. The one that has been rejected has also been raised up. The one that they sought to kill has become their way of salvation. They come to Joseph and they receive grain. They rejected Joseph, but God raised him up so that he might bless those who rejected him. At this point, Stephen turns his attention to Moses. Turns his attention to Moses not only because he's a pillar of Judaism, but because Moses is tantamount to the law. He's the one who received the law from God and gave it to the people. And if you remember in Exodus, when Moses comes down from meeting with God, his face shines with the glory of God. And I think that little tidbit of information helps us understand uh, verse 15 back in chapter 6. Some of you probably saw it and you're like, Stephen's face is like the face of an angel. What's that about? Like, it doesn't mean the same thing that it does nowadays. If you say someone today, you're like, oh man, she has the face of an angel. Okay? That's not what's going on. Stephen's not just like a really good looking guy and like, whew, oh my. No, they, they are angels, or remember, they're scary, they're warriors. And so I think there's that sense, they're also messengers. There's this sense that, that Stephen is going to go into battle as a messenger of God. He is shining with the face of an angel because he's going to rightly represent Moses. He's going to rightly interpret the law for them. Okay? And so he starts to do that in verse 17. As the time was approaching to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, 
the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. This doesn't mean the king didn't know Joseph. Remember when we went through Exodus, we said he just wasn't going to honor the deal that his predecessor had with Moses, okay? Who knows who Joseph is? He's just like, I'm not keeping that deal. These, these Israelites, they've grown to be too prosperous. They might take over the place. And so I think a better idea than honoring the deal we had is to enslave them. That's what's going on here. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them abandon their infants outside so they wouldn't survive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home for three months. When he was put outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. God is in Egypt. God is with Moses, and he's using the enemies of Israel to care for Moses. When he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. The next day, he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why are you mistreating one another? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? God, Moses seeks to deliver God's people, but they, they do not see it. They, they do not understand, and so they reject Moses. But God will raise him up. When he heard this, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come to set them free. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. God meets Moses. He doesn't need a temple. He'll use a burning bush if he has to. It's that place that becomes holy because of God's presence. This Moses, verse 35, whom they rejected when they said, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and a deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among your brothers and sisters. He is the one who is in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him of Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. And they told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol, and were celebrating what their hands had made. God turned away and gave them up to worship the stars of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, House of Israel, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness? 
The assumed answer is no, you didn't. You were worshiping false gods. Did you bring me offerings and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness? No. You took up the tent of Moloch and of your star god, Raphon, the images that you made to worship. So I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And so we get this picture of kind of Israel's history. God gives the law to Moses. And if you remember, before Moses has even made it back down the mountain, the people are like, who knows what happened to Moses? We need to worship something. Aaron, could you whip up some, some golden calf for us? And we'll, we'll worship that as our God who led us out of Egypt. And Moses comes down the mountain and he's like, what are you guys doing? And he's enraged. And he melts down the calf, mixes it in the water and makes him drink it. I, I said it was the original Goldschlager. Didn't end well for them. Judgment comes. Moses gives them the opportunity to repent. They're like, if you are with me, come to this side. And, and they, some of them repent in turn, but others stay in their sin. And the Levites go throughout the camp and they kill those who refuse to turn from their sin and repent. But what Stephen's doing with this account is he's showing us kind of a, a story that encompasses the whole story of Israel to this point. God speaks and reveals himself to his people. He decides he wants to bless his people. And over and over and over again, his people decide that they would rather have curse. They would rather do things their way than God's way. Time and time again, they choose sin instead of God. And so God gives them over to their sins. God takes them into exile. And so so Stephen's saying that the whole history of Israel has been one of sin. You've been given the law, but you haven't kept the law. Now he turns his attention to the temple. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded them to make it, according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors, in turn, received it, and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them, until the days of David. He found favor in God's sight, and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon, rather than David, who built him a house. But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. Or what will be my resting place? Did not my hands make all these things? God was with Abraham when there was no temple. God was with Joseph in Egypt outside of the promised land. God was with Moses in the wilderness. He was with Joshua. He was with David all before the temple even existed. God is not limited in his ability to do what he wants. He's not, he can't be confined to a temple The universe is his armchair, and the earth is his ottoman. God cannot be managed or controlled. He can't be pressed into an image. He can't be made to serve the men that he created. See, what's gone wrong with the temple is that the Jewish people have begun to misunderstand it and misuse it. The temple has actually become an idol. Okay? And so you see this, it's it's really subtle. But in verse 48, you see that made with hands in reference to the temple? It's true that it's made with hands and it was good originally. But it's a callback to what he said about their making their idols. I think it's verse 38, 39 where they made, sorry, verse 41, celebrating, after they'd made the golden calf, they were celebrating what their hands had made. Being invited to make a connection here. Stephen's saying, you've missed the point of the temple. It was never an end in of itself. It was meant to point you to Jesus. In the same way, he's saying, you've missed the point of the law. It was never meant to be an end in of itself. It was meant to point you to Jesus. Think of it this way. This is probably isn't a very good analogy, but it's what, what came to my head. So, 
when we had, used to have a kind family that would attend the church. They had a second home over in Stony Creek, and they would come semi-regularly. Um, but once upon a time, they, they had to move out of here. And so when they were moving out, they brought Chelsea and I over to their house, and they were like, anything you see, like, you can have. And we were like, we'll take that and that and that and that. And they did. They gave it to us. It was awesome. Uh, one of the things they gave us was a nice big kitchen table. And so uh, I got rid of my mother's kitchen table that I had inherited and brought in this new kitchen table. And I also instituted a new policy. No kids at the big table. You know, like kids, my kids, like, they ruin stuff sometimes, right? And so I, like, I've got this little kids table. It's still there in my house. There's like this little kids table where they would sit and then Chelsea and I would sit at this table that's for like eight people, just the two of us. It was because I was worried, like, you know, they're going to get there. For whatever reason, it comes upon them, like, oh, that my fork? You know what I should do with my fork is, like, carve my name into the table here. Or my plate, I should just pick it up and drop it down. Now, they just break stuff. I didn't want them to scuff up and mess up the table. And Chelsea tried to talk me out of this for a long time, and I just, I wouldn't. Then it dawned on me one day, as it probably should have, like, initially, like, the purpose of the table is to bring me into relationship with my family at mealtime. By banishing my children from my table, I was working against the table's purpose. Our relationship during that time wasn't really being built up. If you think likewise, the Jewish people that are opposing the gospel right now have misunderstood the temple. They've misunderstood its purpose. See, the purpose of the temple is to bring the people into relationship with God. And the way that God brings his people into relationship with him is through Jesus. And instead of seeing how the temple points them to Jesus, they refused and said, no, we're going to keep worshiping in this temple our way. Keep doing our thing. And so they, they take something that's sacred and they cause it to serve their agenda. Friends, you can make anything into an idol. We can make anything into a God. Or is there any church stuff that you might turn into an idol? I tried to think about this. You know, like maybe you, you do your quiet time in such a way that you're serving your quiet time just to do it, to check it off your list, rather than to get into relationship with God. Like you've missed the point of the quiet time if you're not getting into relationship with Jesus, right? Are you doing that five minutes in prayer because you've got to or to get in relationship with Jesus? Are you coming to church on Sunday morning because you've got to and you want to gather together with God's people and be encouraged and hear about how Jesus rules and reigns and how he's defeated death, he's going to make all things well? Are you coming to that because you have to or because you want to get closer to Jesus? You make anything into an idol. And this is what they've done with the temple. They've, they've misunderstood its full and final purpose. Because, you see, Jesus is the new temple. You get this? He's the new temple. He's the great high priest who offers the perfect sacrifice of himself in order to atone for our sins so that we can be in right relationship with God. See that? Everything that goes on in the temple, you have the priest, he mediates relationship between God and man. But man is unholy because he can't keep the law, right? But see, what Jesus does is he's the righteous one, as we're going to see in a second. He keeps the law. He fulfills the law. And so he goes in as a perfect high priest without sin. And when he goes in to make a sacrifice to God so that God's people can be in relationship with God, when he goes in to make a sacrifice to atone for sin, so that sinful human beings can be in relationship with God. He offers a sacrifice not for himself and the people. He offers himself on behalf of the people. Do you remember when Jesus dies, that curtain tears? God can now be in relationship with anyone who puts their faith in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. He is the temple. The place where God and man come into relationship is Jesus Christ. The temple is a signpost meant to point us to Jesus. And at this point in redemptive history, Stephen is saying, if you've missed the temple, or sorry, if you've missed Jesus as the point of the temple, you've missed it. 
Every passage, every page of Scripture is meant to point us to Jesus. You can't keep the law, he says. Jesus has. Sure, they still have the law, but it only condemns them without Christ. Sure, they still have the temple, but God doesn't meet them there without Christ. And so now Stephen turns his sermon to the real application part, and it's not nice. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. It's, it's just not good to call a Jewish person uncircumcised, okay? It means that they're strangers to the promises of God, that they're outside of the covenant, that they haven't heard and understood God's word. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, you do also. Notice this shift in language. To this point, he's over and over and over again said, our ancestors, or maybe your translation says fathers, our fathers, our ancestors, our ancestors, our ancestors, our ancestors. And now he says, your ancestors. What's he doing? Well, he's saying, you all are following the pattern of those who have rejected God's word and rejected God's servants misunderstood his revelation and his redemptive purposes. I have not rejected God's purposes. My eyes have seen Jesus. My heart is circumcised. My ears do hear. And what I've heard, I'm proclaiming also to you that you might know what God is doing. That you might know Jesus. That's his point. He said, you guys, you've missed it. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. You haven't kept the law. Jesus has. You betrayed him. You murdered him on the cross. You killed him just like your fathers before you killed God's messengers. But just as God rose up his messengers in the past to bring about the deliverance of his people, so too God has raised up this Jesus. All of the people Stephen has mentioned to this point are meant, just like the law in the tabernacle, to point us to Jesus. Jesus is the new Abraham who leaves his home in heaven in order to obey the Father. And in obedience to the Father, he inherits the galaxy and numberless descendants. Jesus is the new Joseph, whose favor with the Father causes those who should have loved him to become jealous and to kill him, to send him to the pit. But God raises Jesus out of the pit to the right hand of power where he rules and reigns and blesses even those who rejected him. Brings them salvation. Joseph's brothers came to Egypt for grain and now men and women everywhere come to Jesus because he is the bread of life. He's the only one who can satisfy our every need. Jesus is the new Moses. He comes to bring deliverance to his people, but they do not understand. And so they reject him. But God raises him up. He is the one who mediates a new covenant, one that's forged in his blood, based on his performance alone and not ours. He's the one who leads us out of slavery. Not slavery in Egypt, but slavery to sin. It's the one who leads us into the freedom of knowing and worshiping God. The point is Jesus. And if you miss Jesus, all you're left with is a law that condemns you in an empty temple. That's Stephen's point. 
He's saying, you are repeating the sins of your fathers. You are repeating the mistakes of the past. You have rejected Jesus, and implicit within is the invitation to come to Jesus. But these folks who are opposing Stephen are not about to respond to that invitation. In fact, uh, I think they cut him off. I don't think he's done preaching yet, but they've, they've heard quite enough. They've rejected God's messenger. They've rejected Jesus. And so now they will reject Stephen. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. Like children in all-out temper tantrum, they've got their hands over their ears, lightning in their eyes, and they scream and stamp their feet as they rush at Stephen. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. Stephen is following in the footsteps of Jesus. And Luke is making that really, really apparent. Notice, from all the way back in chapter 6, Stephen is put on trial like Jesus. He's accused by false witnesses like Jesus. He's accused of being anti-temple like Jesus. He's accused with blasphemy like Jesus. He's questioned by the high priest like Jesus. He calls out, receive my spirit to God like Jesus. And he prays for his enemies like Jesus. Stephen is giving us a model of discipleship. This is what it looks like for ordinary Christians to follow Jesus. To bear witness faithfully even in the face of extreme persecution. Stephen's able to endure. He's able to follow Jesus because his eyes are fixed on Jesus. It's really, really interesting, verse 56. Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What's, what's going on here? I think it's really easy to miss. You see, there hasn't always been this hard and fast distinction between the crown and the courts. So that to enter into a, a king's throne room throughout history, most of the time was to also enter into a courtroom. The king was also judge. And so what we actually have here is a contrast. You see, on earth, Stephen is in an unjust court, being unjustly condemned, and no one will speak on his behalf. But in heaven, court is in session, and Jesus is standing and interceding for Stephen. On earth, men shout, they grind their teeth, and demand his blood. But in heaven, Jesus smiles stands and presents his blood to the Father. Jesus is saying in heaven, yes, Stephen is a sinner. Yes, Stephen's sin deserves condemnation and death, but Stephen belongs to me. I've already offered my blood on his behalf. The punishment that should have fallen on him has already fallen on me. The debt has been paid. 
It would be unrighteous to require another payment. And so Stephen must not be condemned upon his death, but celebrated and welcomed into heaven just as I am. Stephen is mine. He belongs to me. His inheritance is heaven. Stephen sees our salvation depicted. He sees Jesus interceding before the throne of God. Love that hymn. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue shall bid me thence depart. Jesus is seen before the throne pleading and interceding for Stephen. And he is the great high priest. He's the true and better Moses. He can actually get the job done. He can actually broker a peace there. And he does. In the short term, Stephen does indeed have a cross on his back. Stones upon his head. But in the long term, he's going to receive a crown of life. Also notice verse 60, he prays, do not hold this sin against them. You kind of go, is he wasting his breath at this point? I mean, they're already killing him. I get you're, he's emulating Jesus, but I'm less holy than Stephen. Like at this point, I'm probably like, Lord, like one of the imprecatory Psalms, like, Lord, let the righteous bathe their feet in the blood of these wicked men. Like, bring their wicked deeds down upon them. That's not what Stephen does. He, he's more Christ-like than I am. He, he says, don't hold this sin against them. Was that prayer pointless? I don't know. You tell me. Who do you see in verse 58? Holding coats. Saul. Saul, who would become Paul the Apostle, is there aiding and abetting this miscarriage of judgment. The beginning of chapter 8, we'll see that he is pictured as ravaging the church, persecuting the people of God. But Saul is there and he hears Stephen pray, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And how he must have replayed this moment over and over and over again in his mind as he was persecuting the church. How he must have heard it echoing in his brain as stones fell from the sky and splintered Stephen's skull. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. As Stephen knelt in a pool of his own blood beneath a hail of rocks, he he must have heard these words echoing, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Because Saul had this prayer answered in his life. He must have heard it when Jesus knocked him from his horse on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He must have thought, this is it. I was wrong. Stephen's going to be vindicated. I'm going to be killed. But instead, he's told, no longer will you persecute me, but now you will preach about me. Why isn't Saul killed? Why isn't he just wrecked because of his sin? Because Stephen prayed for him. Saul is the answer to Stephen's prayer. He is one in the midst of the mob whose sin will not be held against him. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Oh, Saul must have thought of this prayer often in his life. After all, this is, this is where Luke would have gotten the information about Stephen's sermon. This from a conversation with the Apostle Paul. I imagine these events were vivid in his mind after his conversion. All because of the ordinary faithfulness of Stephen, following in the footsteps of Christ, bearing witness to Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is our job. It is our job to follow Jesus and to bear witness about Jesus. 
That's the ordinary work of a Christian. And when you decide to take up your cross and follow Jesus, that's not just like lip service. At least I pray it's not. Now you pick up your cross and follow Jesus because now he is your everything. You pick up the cross and follow Jesus because you want to have something to die on if the moment calls for it. Don't set out to be a martyr, but you set out to be like Jesus, no matter what the cost. He's called us to ordinary faithfulness, bearing witness to him. You may encounter hostility, yes, but God will accomplish so much, even through the rejection of his servants. Stephen was rejected, but God will raise him up. You may be rejected, but God will raise you up. Friends, the souls of our community will not be saved unless you are obedient to pray and to bear witness. We have to ask ourselves, are we content to be a church that doesn't bear witness? Are we content to be a church that in our functional everyday lives, you would think that we followed a Savior who called us to comfort rather than a cross? Are we willing to follow Jesus? Are we willing to be rejected for Jesus? Are we willing to bear witness to Jesus so that those who seem farthest from God people that were like us before we heard this wonderful good news, can come to know the God who has loved them and gave himself for them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for wonderful truth in your word. Thank you for the call to follow Jesus. There's nothing better. Thank you for the wonderful truth that no matter what terrible things might befall us in this life, the worst thing that ever happens to us is that we come home to you. God, we praise you that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that the ones who trust in him, even though they perish, yet shall they live. Thank you for this glorious hope. Thank you for this glorious gospel. Pray that we would steward this amazing privilege of knowing you and holding these wonderful words of life, that we would steward it faithfully. And we praise you that you are faithful even when we are faithless, that you love us the same on our worst week as you do on our best week, because we are one with Christ. It's to his glory that we pray. Amen.